You're listening to Uprooted, the podcast from the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy. I'm Josh Wise. Uh, Today I'm joined on the podcast by Steve Supan uh, to talk about um, financial markets and crop prices. Uh, Steve wrote a blog uh, a couple of weeks ago called USDA Helps High Frequency Traders Now Promises Help for Farmers Later. That blog was written in anticipation of the tariff retaliation compensation package of $12 billion that the Trump administration announced last week. Um, We had originally recorded the podcast a week ago, but we had some issues with internet connectivity and our sound quality was pretty bad. So we're trying this again. Steve, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Josh. All right. So first of all, explain what this aid package to farmers actually is. So it's uh, a $12 billion package, uh, and the, uh, the package uh, has three parts. Seven to $8 billion of it uh, will be used in uh, direct cash payments to uh, a handful of major grain and oilseed uh, uh, producers, and then also uh, hog and beef cattle producers. So, you know, corn, wheat, soy. Uh, of hogs, uh, you know, beef cattle, uh, will be compensated. And then the other uh, uh, $4 billion, uh, an undetermined portion of that will be used uh, by the Commodity Credit Corporation to buy up uh, dairy, beef, uh, pork uh, production, you know, butter cheese, uh, for distribution to um, to food shelves. And then, you know, X, X part of that remaining uh, $4 to $5 billion will be used for export promotion uh, beyond what is already used uh, for export promotion. So that's the, that's the basics of the package. Uh, when it was announced, uh, USDA Secretary Sonny Perdue said that this would not make farmers whole, and he was very very right. It doesn't begin to make farmers whole in the sense of uh, bringing their returns up anywhere near to where uh, their cost production are. And the cost production uh, uh, exceeded the prices they were receiving from agribusiness uh, prior to the announcement of tariffs. And so the tariffs, or the threat of tariffs, the threat of tariff retaliation was taken up by the uh, futures market, and especially by the commodity index traders, the hedge funds, uh, to short those contracts, further driving down the prices. So as the National Farmers Union and, and we said in our statements uh, when they announced that package, it would really, what farmers need is to have that market back. I mean, and, and our analysis is that, you know, that the dependence on the export agriculture is clearly not a sustainable system, and this just further proved that. With this aid package in place, you know, you've, as you said, the, the price of uh, commodities has fallen even further. Um, what do we expect the long-term effects of this to be? Well, I think in terms of the, the part of the package, which is direct uh, assistance to farmers, I'm pretty sure that the United States will uh, not notify that to the World Trade Organization in their allowed uh, aggregate measures of support because that would put the United States far above 
uh, uh, the AMS level of 19 billion uh, a year that the U.S. is allowed. Uh, it will be classified as an emergency payment just the way that when uh, uh, the U.S. did not want to classify the so-called emergency payments after the Freedom to Farm Bill, uh, it, it just stopped reporting. So there, there's that consequence. Um, and it, it makes the, uh, position of the United States in charging that other WTO members don't report their, uh, don't report their payments to the WTO Committee on Agriculture. That position will be very, very much weakened. Um, in terms of losing export markets, I think the, uh, uh, the tariffs and particularly regarding China, because that's the, that's the most important single market. Those tariffs will have to be applied for quite a while before uh, uh, China decides to make a um, large scale switch uh, in where it uh, where it sources, especially soy. I mean, they uh, the Chinese other countries' anticipation uh, of these tariffs uh, speeded up their purchase of soy uh, from. Uh, not just the U.S., but also from Brazil and from uh, from Argentina. Uh, Europe uh, fast-forwarded its contracting of soy. So, you know, right now the um, uh, the situation is that, uh, you know, these markets uh, haven't been lost. And the, the, the losses can occur for a lot of reasons other than, um, other than tariffs. I mean, you can have a situation where, uh, an exporter loses its license to export because its shipments of soy, for example, have a, a protein content that is lower than that agreed in the contract. And that's been a problem for U.S. exporters because the, uh, uh, the percentage of, of protein in soy is falling, meaning that you have to import more soy in order to get the same protein impact and there are other, you know, reasons that that exporters lose their their uh, their license. To. Right. So, um, but the the off the the um, the takeaway, I guess, is that um, even though it'll take a while for the the loss of the export market to be felt, or you know, dramatically, um, the immediate effect was the further driving down of prices, and I think that kind of leads into talking about your blog, which um, has to do with um, basically, uh, you know, giving uh, high frequency traders more leverage in the marketplace. Let's, um, let's back up a little bit. Talk about how the futures market works. Like wh why, why is there a futures market to begin well, with? Well, let, me, let me start with, you know, the title of, of the blog that mm -hmm. uh, uh, USDA you know, aided uh, the high-frequency traders before and helped out farmers. Mm -hmm. uh, and that just referred to the fact that uh, Secretary Secretary Purdue, without any public consultation, no comment period, no public meetings, uh, decided with the Commodity Futures Trading Commission that the, uh, the extremely influential uh, world agricultural supply and demand estimates uh, should be released on its website simultaneously rather than the uh, the decades old practice of releasing those uh, 
those documents to the agriculture and trade press uh, so that they could uh, digest them, report them to their clients. Uh, and uh, what this what this new policy does is that the traders with the most powerful and fastest computers can take that information and plug it into their trading algorithms. Whereas if you are a commodity trader in a rural area, uh, or if, heaven forbid, you are a farmer directly uh, trying to compete in the futures market from an area that has a very bad rural broad, uh, broadband, uh, you, uh, you are in, in, in great difficulty because uh, you will simply not get that information uh, in time to, to take advantage of it for trading purposes the way that automated trading systems will be able to, to do. And furthermore, there was a, a great story by Chris Clayton in DTN that is uh, cited in, in my blog in which he reports that uh, the grain traders have said, you know, you can't, you can't access the, uh, uh, these World Agricultural Supply and Demand estimates as it is because the site is not able to handle all the traffic. And so you have to wait, uh, you know, minutes to be able to access that data and minutes for some of these uh, traders, you know, compared to the high frequency traders might as well be days. Uh, you know, you have the high frequency traders, the automated trading systems with this trading information that they plug into their trading systems and they can get, they can, uh, 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 you know, bid on those contracts before anybody else and they get in and out of them and then essentially create uh, a, a rolling price volatility that makes uh, uh, the margin requirements for trading higher, makes it harder for your traditional commodity traders to effectively uh, manage their price risks. Right. And so now why is that futures market so important for farmers? So futures markets, um, set prices that are benchmarks for, uh, for your country elevators for grains and oil seeds and for your local stockyards. And so what happens is uh, these, these elevators and the rural bankers uh, look at those futures prices, for example, the Chicago Mercantile Exchange or the, uh, you know, the Minneapolis uh, Grain Exchange, and then they they you know look at their prices for the storage of grains and oil seeds for the costs of drying those grains and oil seeds if they're not dry enough uh, uh, for purchase by Cargill or ADM or any of the big grain traders. And then they put in their own profit margin, uh, labor costs, insurance costs, infrastructure costs, and so on and so forth. And then they set uh, uh, a farm gate price at which those products are sold. And so, for example, uh, you know, right now, uh, soy is trending around eight and a half dollars a bushel or so uh, on the futures markets, whereas uh, in the country elevators last week in Nebraska, uh, prices for soy ranged between uh, $7.50 a bushel and $8 a bushel. And those differences are, you know, depend a lot on the logistics and the economics of the elevators and their um, transportation links to the major uh, major terminal elevators owned by Cargill and ABM and Bungie and so on and so forth. And so, um, you know, you had, uh, you had said that a few seconds makes a lifetime of difference in terms of, 
you know, being able to set the price. How are the high frequency traders doing that? What's their, what's the mechanism by which they're doing that trading? Well, the Chicago Mercantile Exchange will tell you that, um, you know, high frequency traders uh, are, are being reduced uh, in the market because of the fees that the, uh, that the CME and other, um, and other exchanges are trading. But that, uh, you know, that's a, a relatively small percentage of automated trading. So automated traders may not be trading in microseconds, but they're trading in, you know, in seconds and minutes. And so they have, they have both the technology advantage, uh, and they have an information advantage. The information advantage, as I noted in the, in the blog, uh, comes particularly when they are trading large blocks of uh, of contracts and the commodity futures trading commission uh has come out with a couple of reports to basically say uh you know there's no need to to regulate automated trading systems and everything is okay with these large blocks of uh trading of agricultural derivatives contracts the problem being that uh, a lot of these contracts are traded over the counter uh meaning they're not traded in a public uh, publicly, uh, public exchanges that report directly to the CFTC. And so you have this price delay, uh, which gives those over the counter traders, uh, a, a information advantage in trading because they get to see the publicly traded prices and other information in those trades while the, uh, the traders in the uh, exchanges don't get to see the over the counter trading information until much later. Uh, in the day, or for that matter, much later in the week. And so the the report from the USDA, the WASD report, really contributes to that inter- information advantage or disadvantage. Um, can you talk briefly about what that report is, and then we'll get into how it's being used in the in the market? Basically, the futures and options market and the over-the-counter traders are are trading in anticipation of prices. And supply and demand uh, is still a major factor. And, and, and the, you know, these traders are, uh, for the most part, uh, global traders. And they're looking at the ability of the major, uh, you know, grain and oil seed traders uh, to, um, to access or to source grain and oil seeds from any of their of the global sources. And so, you know, if, if the North American wheat crop fails, well, uh, you know, Cargill has, uh, you know, contacts in the Ukraine that will supply that. Or if the, the U.S. soy crop is less than what is anticipated, well, it's important for these traders to know how Brazilian or how the Argentine crop is doing. At the same time, on the demand side, traders take a look at so how much is uh, is China demanding in corn? Well, they've they've decided to rely on their own reserves for a while because they're not which, sure which way the market in in corn is going, and and so on and so forth for for other grains and oil seeds. That's why the global aspect of that supply and demand estimate is uh, is so important to to traders. And so the the idea being that you know eventually. Um, someone is actually going to want to put the wheat to use or the corn to use somewhere in the world. So whoever ends up holding that contract at the end of the day, 
they want to they want to be able to make sure they can actually fulfill that order, right? I guess I, I'm trying to understand like the system, or, you know, the the process from which it goes from being a future to actually being a, sort of a transaction on the ground and ending up in a, you know, that where the grain goes from being a contract ending up in like the belly of a pig or something like that. Can you explain a little bit more about how that works? So maybe only ten percent of uh, futures contracts are actually physically delivered. Um, and these contracts can last in duration anywhere from 90 days to maybe up to a year or so for agricultural, uh, uh, agricultural derivatives contracts. And, uh, uh, however, even with a small percentage being physically deliverable, uh, they are still, um, the reference price for the cash transactions, uh, which are the, you know, the great, great lion's share of those transactions are forward contracted. So for example, if I'm in Egypt, I'm importing wheat uh, from Cargill, uh, the cash price of that contract from uh, from Cargill or with Cargill is going to be, you know, set in sort of tranches, you know, for, you know, whatever your importing terminals can handle. Let's say that you are, you know, taking delivery every month you have basically kind of a phase in of different contracts that, you know, are, are uh, negotiated with one eye on that, with one eye on that futures price. And if the futures price is so volatile that you can't figure out um, at what point, you know, what price you should be buying something, uh, you may just let your, uh, your terminal elevators uh, empty out to a certain percentage until you can figure out which way the market is going. And so you're contracting with, uh, uh, you know, several commodity specialists, uh, who not only understand, um, you know, the, the kind of futures market, but also are, you know, conversant with, uh, logistics and transportation contracts, because maybe at some point, um, you will need to, uh, uh, to be able to contract with barges, uh, with ships, maybe, you know, even with railroads to bring in, uh, you know, short-term supplies in addition to what you've uh, contracted for over the long term. And so, so the, the idea being that having a stable futures market, um, even though you know, only 10% of that ends up being in deliverables is really important for making sure that those products actually do get delivered, right? Because what it sounds like I, I was hearing you saying is that um, if, if the market's volatile, buyers won't buy until the last minute, which means that supplies will uh, basically c could get low or run out and ultimately the products wouldn't be able to be delivered on time, right? You know, so what the what a futures commodity futures market is supposed to do is to function in a way that will enable commercial hedgers, that is the users of commodities, processors, people who uh, transport commodities, people who produce commodities, to be able to manage price risks. If you flood the market with financial contracts by people who have no commercial interests in these commodities, uh, you can bounce the prices like a yo-yo and you can do so in a way that is not reported to the Commodity Futures Trading Commission. So 
uh, a lot, all almost all high frequency trading and a great portion of automated uh, trading systems complete their trades. They, they say close out the trades during the trade day. And so at the end of the day, they do not report to the CFTC. So the CFTC's knowledge of uh, price volatility is not, it does not, any knowledge they have does not derive from the publicly available knowledge. Rather, you have to uh, subscribe to very expensive data systems. And if you are a, if you're a commodity, a traditional commodity trader who's trying to figure out what's going on in that market, maybe you can afford that very expensive Thomson Reuters, uh, you know, minute by minute tick data service. The uh, this whole problem has become more difficult because uh, you know these these trading algorithms have taken the place of a lot of sort of classical index funds because the uh, the algorithms um, are not uh, available uh, to the CFTC, so that if the if the algorithm is designed in such a way that uh, let's say it bundles financial, non-agricultural, and uh, agricultural derivatives contracts, well, depending on how that algorithm is composed and how it's um, how it's operated, you know, you can create a lot of price volatility that has nothing to do with the fundamental factors of agricultural trading, the logistics, supply and demand, um, you know, insurance issues. Uh, and, and so for, you know, your agricultural trader, your farm cooperative, depending on a commodity trade advisor, they're in, a, in the dark about a lot of what is going on at this very high financial level of trading. So basically, by giving the high-frequency traders access to this report 90 minutes earlier, um, it means that the volume of trading will be much higher, much more quickly, so that the, um, the traders who don't have access to the high-frequency systems are going to be even further in the dark about the information regarding the futures prices. Is that... Let me, let me correct you there. It's not that the you know, high frequency traders or those who use automated trading systems uh, will get the information earlier. It's just that the, 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 that, that report will be put out and because of their technological power, the high frequency trading computers are going to access it immediately. I mean, microseconds before anybody else gets it. Mm -hmm. And it's going to, you know, X number, X number of users are going to be able to get that information immediately and why number of users are going to have to wait and you know the amount of time that they wait well we'll find out uh, we'll find out uh, you know later this month when the when the first WASD under the new policy is put out uh, on the market there was a lot of complaint uh, from those uh, agricultural journalists news services uh, for whom uh, you know, part of their service to their clients was uh, interpreting uh, both quantitatively and qualitatively uh, what the WASDE meant for, you know, XYZ commodity. Mm -hmm. And now um, they are going to be thrown in with uh, traders that have much larger technological information capacity, uh, including those that are trading over the counter. 
and so therefore uh, are not releasing information publicly uh, in, a, in a timely fashion. And so to just kind of to, to tie it back, it seems like the common thread between the tariffs and the, the high frequency trading and, you know, and, and what you wrote about in the blog with the WASD report, um, it all comes down to volatility in the market and uncertainty for farmers. So with all of that volatility, with all that uncertainty, if I were a farmer, what would I be thinking about planting next year's crop, for example, or, you know, what to do with this year's harvest? Well, I mean, you've, you've got farmers receiving low cost of production prices in, in all commodities. Now they get this little one-time shot in the arm, and then there's going to be a farm bill. And the farm bill is going to, uh, in all likelihood, uh, almost certainly not include any supply uh, management measures, which, which are common in virtually every other industry. So that uh, you know there will be a a vast oversupply. Now, you know it is actually a good public policy to have some oversupply in the event that there is you know crop failure or major animal disease in another uh, in another country, another part of the country. But you want to have that oversupply managed. And right now, we don't have any means to do that except for a very small, uh, very small and uh, politically attacked program in sugar in the United States. Uh, in the U.S., we have uh, major investments, for example, by Walmart in processing in dairy processing plants when there's already a vast dairy overprocessing capacity. We are importing uh, dairy products when uh, U.S. dairy processing companies are pouring down, pouring raw milk down the drain, literally. So um, we have all of these domestic, uh, domestic agriculture problems, um, and you know our trade policy is to keep maximizing production uh, to. Uh, to the benefit of the agribusinesses who are getting their uh, raw materials of low cost production, but the farmers, you know, face uh, uh, public wrath outside of rural areas for getting those subsidies, which in any event are inadequate to keep their, their equity from eroding, right? Because more and more farm families depend on non-farm jobs. I think USDA came out with a report last year 82% of household income on farms comes from non-farm sources. I mean, that's a, a pathetic testimony to just how little has been done to discipline agricultural markets to pay fair prices to farmers. So it sounds like, you know, the looking at it, you know, you could see prices are low and it's really unpredictable, right? And so the decision of do I even want to continue doing this, you know, it becomes a real factor. Well, and that's another problem, right, is that you have more and more farmers, uh, you know, if you haven't inherited the land, if you're, you know, dependent on renting the land, uh, if you haven't inherited uh, new farm machinery, uh, you know, the farmers who are telling their children to go into agriculture are becoming fewer and fewer. Uh, the average age of farmers is getting older and older. I remember there's a New York Times op-ed uh, about the 
about the uh, the twelve billion dollar uh, rescue package that said, well, it's it's not going to do the, the, the whole tariff uh, attack plan is not doing anything for farmers because uh, Iowa farmers are aging so quickly that uh, they are selling their land either to very large corporate farms or to uh, farmland real estate trusts that you know Wall Street will manage for fun and profit. And it sounds like that trend is you know, accelerating with some of these moves. Um, you know, I'm, we'll have you back on the podcast again to talk about solutions to this, but for right now, we've got to wrap it up. So Steve, thanks a lot for joining me on the podcast today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to Uprooted, the podcast from the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy. For more on what you've heard today, including to read Steve's blog, USDA helps high-frequency traders now, promises help for farmers later, and IATP's statement on the $12 billion aid package to farmers, you can visit our website at www.iatp.org. I want to remind you that you can download this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. And if you like what you heard, you can give us a positive rating. I also want to thank Andrew Arisso for editing the podcast. And if you have any questions or comments, you can send an email to jwise at iatp.org. Thanks for listening.